You know, as a church, one of the things that binds us together is spiritual friendship. It binds us together because friendship with sinners is dangerous. It involves risk. And yet, I want us to see this morning why that risk is right. So, if you have your Bibles, I'm going to read from John chapter 15 this morning. It's our primary text. I won't be just sticking to this text, um, but I want to read that for us this morning. John chapter 15, verse 12 through to 17. And then I'm going to ask the Lord to help us this morning as we turn to consider this this very uh, wonderful topic. John chapter 15 Verse 12, this is the Lord Jesus addressing us this morning, church. The Lord Jesus said, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, He may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Would you pray with me, church? Lord Jesus, we want to thank you this morning for the friendship of Christ to us. Thank you, Lord, that you would look at your disciples and you would call us friends. Lord, I pray for anyone here this morning struggling with loneliness or disappointment. Would you remind us, Lord, this morning of the privilege of being counted amongst your friends. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have you ever had a time in your life where you felt as though you didn't really have any friends? Maybe that's your experience right now. You can remember in the past people you were close with, but that seems the distant past. Maybe you're wounded. Maybe you feel like giving up on people. Or maybe it's more just that you're overwhelmed. And you often wonder, where do you even find the time in this life for friends? Maybe you just don't think that you need friends. You've got other priorities right now, like family and career. You know, I remember being in high school and a season where I kind of felt like I was straddling between two groups of friends. I wasn't sure I really belonged in either one of them. At the same time, in the church I was part of, it was a large church, and the youth group was mainly filled with people from a local Christian school, and it was very clicky. And I didn't really felt as though I fit, fitted in the group at all. And so at youth group, I would mainly spend time just talking to the leaders. At times, it was a very lonely experience. Because the truth is, 
that life is miserable without friends. And maybe that's you right now. Maybe there was a time in the past when you had really close friendships that you look back on with fondness, but times have changed, you've drifted, and now you find yourself often feeling lonely. You know, recent studies suggest that one in four Australians are not just lonely, but would say they are profoundly lonely. One in four. Recent studies from just last year suggest that 8% of Australians have been profoundly lonely for more than eight years. 8%, nearly one in 10 of us. And part of our challenge is that in our culture, we don't really place a high value on friendship. We value romantic relationships. Here's a headline you will never see. Beyonce announces new best friend. We don't care. It doesn't matter to us. We want to know who she's sleeping with. We don't describe someone as just being like a friend to me. We tend to use family language instead. He's like a brother. He's like a sister. He's like a father to me. Band of friends doesn't really seem to cut it. Yet many people end up coming to the end of their lives and profoundly regretting their lack of investment in friends. You know, I was blown away reading this this week. Bonnie Ware, she's an Australian author and former palliative care nurse. Uh, She collected the epiphanies of her patients over many years that they had at the end of their lives, in the last couple of weeks of their lives, and she wrote a book about it. And the book is called The Top Five Regrets of the Dying. And do you know what one of those top five regrets is? Friendships. Here's what she says. Often they would not truly realize the full benefits of old friends until their dying weeks, and it was not always possible to track them down. Many had become so caught up in their own lives that they had let golden friendships slip by over the years. There were many deep regrets about not giving friendships the time and effort they deserved. You know, come to the end of your life and you won't be bothered about how many days you worked on your career. You won't be bothered about the house that you own, the career that you had. What you'll be bothered about is your friends. You know, although making friends with sinners is always going to be risky, I'm out to convince you from God's word that the risk is right. Especially amongst God's people in the local church, they hold the potential for so much joy and so much happiness in life. They're messy, yes. Contrary to popular perception, friendships require sacrifice and work. But they are worth it. You know, if you're taking notes this morning, I've entitled this message Friendship. And I've got three main points for us this morning. Point number one is that you were made for friendship. Point number two is that friendship has been redeemed. And point number three is really some principles for cultivating friendship. But one hope for us this morning, and that is this, that casting our fears aside, we would pursue deep and lasting friendships. Now, 
I want to highly commend to you two books that have really helped me in the process of writing uh, this message this morning. The first is a book by Drew Hunter called Made for Friendships. It's a wonderful book. And the second is a book by Tim Lane and Paul Tripp called uh, Relationships, A Mess Worth Making. Even the title uh, says it all. Wonderful books uh, that I highly recommend to you guys. But let's dive right in this morning to point number one. You were made for friendship. Now, I've been saying that we live in a culture that places little value on friendship. It's important for some, perhaps, but we definitely wouldn't say that it's essential for the happy life. It sounds, in fact, friendship a little bit frothy and a little bit quaint to most people. I'm friends with someone. It doesn't really carry any weight at all. As social media and Facebook friends, we often confuse friendship with just having someone as an acquaintance. And yet, throughout history, nearly every culture except ours has said that friendships are not just important, they are vitally important to life. Here's something that St. Augustine said in the 400s, in the 5th century. He said this, Two things are essential in this world. Life and friendship. Both must be prized highly and not undervalued. They are nature's gifts. We were created by God that we might live. But if we are not to live solitarily, we must have friendship. Here's something that the bishop, J.C. Ryle, also said in the 1800s. He said the following, the famous Anglican bishop. He said this, This world is full of sorrow because it's full of sin. It's a dark place. It's a lonely place. It is a disappointing place. The brightest sunbeam in it is a friend. Friendship, I love this, halves our troubles and doubles our joys. Isn't that beautiful? Friendship halves our troubles and doubles our joys. Well, as we begin, let's ponder the question, what is the essence of a friendship? How do we even define it in the first place? Well, Drew Hunter, in his book, Made for Friendship, says this. He says, friendship is an affectionate bond forged between two people as they journey through life with openness and trust. It's an affectionate bond between two people, a bond of love and affection as they together journey through life with openness and trust. Notice those key elements in Drew's definition. Affectionate bond, there's a a kind of love and commitment between these two people. They love one another. There's openness and trust. There's honesty. There's a real sharing of life together. A friend is someone who sees the real you warts and all, and loves you just the same. Deuteronomy chapter 13 verse 6 describes in a, in a wonderful line, your friend who is as your own soul. Or you could replace that word, your friend who is as your own life. A friend can be someone who you consider as your very own flesh. Your phrase is used Uh, in two other occasions in the Old Testament to describe the relationship between Jonathan and David. Now, after slaying Goliath, Jonathan overhears David speaking with his father Saul. And we read the following in 1 Samuel 18.1. It says, As soon as he finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul, as his own flesh. 
Uh, This is the kind of love that can exist between two friends. Profound, deep love for one another. Now culture is kind of suspicious of this. It says, well, maybe it's sexual. It must be kind of a romantic kind of love. But that, I reckon, just says more about us than it says about friendship. We care more about sexual relationships than anything else. But I'm not out to do... I'm out to do something more than just to convince you that friendship is a wonderful gift. I want to convince you from the Bible that friendship is actually at the core of our very purpose in life. And to see why that's not a massive overstatement, we need to go back to the very beginning, to Genesis itself. You see, in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, It declares that God made the heavens and the earth, the sea, light, darkness, stars, trees, fish and animals. He made it all. And at every stage, time and time again, God declares as he makes these things that they were good, that they were good, that they were good. Until in his final act, he creates the first man. And we read the following in Genesis 2.18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. I want us just to ponder for a moment together the significance of those words. Adam was created perfectly by God, yet there was something not good. And the not good was, he was alone. Notice this not good was not because of the fall. There was no sin yet. Think with me. Adam had perfect, untainted communion with God, and yet something was still missing. Something not good. And that not good was that he was alone. We were created to be in community with others. We were created for friendship. It's part of what it means to be created in the image of God. Read with me Genesis 1, 26 to 27. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Notice the obvious parallel. Our image, he created them. God created humanity like himself. He created us to be in community. Tim Keller puts it so eloquently like this. He says, Adam was not lonely because he was imperfect, but because he was perfect. The ache for friends is the one ache that is not the result of sin. This is one ache that is part of his perfection. God made us in such a way that we cannot enjoy paradise without friends. God made us in such a way that we cannot enjoy our joy without human friends. Adam had a perfect quiet time every day, 24 hours a day. He never had a dry one, and yet he needed friends. Isn't that beautiful? If you find yourself aching for friends, this is part of God's beautiful design for your life. He has made us for people in his own image. 
Now, some people might raise an objection at this point and say, well, didn't God's answer to Adam's aloneness, uh, well, didn't he answer it with marriage? Isn't it really about marriage? And yes, it's true, but actually, on one level, there's, in fact, more to it. God doesn't, in the passage, firstly, highlight Adam's lack of marriage. He doesn't say it's not good to be single, but he, in fact, says that it is that he is alone. It's not good to be alone. Secondly, marriage in the Christian understanding is a form of friendship anyway. It's a spiritual friendship, a friendship founded first and foremost on Jesus Christ. And thirdly, Adam's marriage was both the answer to his aloneness and humanity's aloneness at the same time by through his marriage with Eve creating humanity as we know it, more people. You see, God created humanity with friendship, for friendship, with one another, and most of all, for friendship with himself. And yet the harmony was short-lived. The fall led to a distrust, a hiding, a shame, and a dishonesty, a breakdown of their friendship with God and each other. But this is where things get exciting. Let's retake and relook at our passage for this morning. Our passage was written on the night of Jesus' betrayal. He's in the upper room with his disciples. Jesus had already demonstrated remarkable care for those excluded from society, such that he was known as a friend of sinners in Matthew eleven nineteen and, and Luke seven thirty four. Jesus had also walked with these twelve disciples as a close friend for a few years. Peter, James, and John, in fact, as his closest friends. And then we read the following in verse 12. Jesus says this, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You know, in the Old Testament, Abraham, as we heard this morning, and Moses were the only people ever called friends with God. And yet Jesus gives this wonderful honor to all of his disciples that they could be his friends. An honor ever, only ever applied to Moses and Abraham. See, Jesus goes on to explain that the cross, in fact, is the greatest expression of friendship the world has ever seen. Jesus came to reconcile us back to himself as friends, though the wrong was our fault, though we were the guilty party. He paid the debt for our failings through his perfect life and obedient death upon the cross. And so in doing shows us that at the center of the universe is a friendship so loving that it can't help but to invite others into it. You know, we find forgiving even small slights so hard. And yet he was willing to be mocked and to die for us. Why? Because he has his heart set on us being his friends. 
See, Jesus is the greatest friend you could ever have. He knows you better than you know yourself. All of your doubts, your hidden sins, the temptations, your failings, all alongside your beauty and your strength. And he's so committed to your good that he was willing to suffer for you. And he extends his friendship to all who are willing to come to him. Friends, I hope you can see now that friendship isn't just the cherry on top of the cake of life, an optional extra. But friendship is at the core of our purpose as people. It's central to our purpose in life. And that's point number one, you are made for friendship. But not just that, point number two, friendship has been redeemed. You know, for some of you this morning, you might be seeing the centrality of friendship to life for the first time and it's making you feel, it's making you feel anxious. It's making you feel nervous. And the reason why is because friendship with sinners is risky and you've been hurt. You know, some time ago, a, a friend of mine decided to simply cut me off. He even told me to stop contacting him. And I still miss him. And I live with that disappointment and that hurt. You know, relationships are messy and painful because of sin, but incredibly hopeful and worth the risk because of the redemptive power of Jesus. You know, in Paul Tripp and Timothy Lane's excellent book, Relationships a Mess Worth Making, they highlight the two extremes we tend towards in friendships. And the first extreme is this, isolation. We back away from friendships. There's multiple reasons why we could take this extreme of backing away of isolation. It could be due to self-confidence. We tell ourselves, we don't need friendships. We're just going to focus on family and career. It could be actually really in the midst of that. Well, obviously in the midst of that, there's a kind of self-deception, isn't there? You know, friendship is core to our humanity. It's a gift from God. We, we can't live without it. It's why solitary confinement is so devastating as a torture or as a punishment. It actually destroys people. They go insane. In Proverbs 18.1 says, Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. And so it is if we believe, due to our own self-confidence, that we don't need friends. But sometimes it could be due to fears. Fears like I've just shared before. You tell yourself, I can't bear to be hurt again or they simply wouldn't be interested. But those fears are really just a form of self-protection and yet the irony is this kind of self-protection actually just leads to self-destruction because we need people. More than that, isolation is actually selfish. In the process of being focused on self-preservation, we're not even thinking about the good of others and their need for us. But even more than that, it's counter to the heartbeat of God who deeply desires us as his friends. You know, read with me again, verse 13 from our passage. Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. That's Jesus' example, suffering and even dying for his friends. Verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, says Jesus. You know, we can be tempted to hold back from friendships and and wait for others to come to us first. But not so with Jesus. 
He came after us. I think Tim Keller puts it so eloquently when he says this. The less you want friends, the less like God you are. The less you want friends, the less like God you are. Isn't there something true in that? Well, that's the first extreme, isolation. The second extreme is not isolation, but immersion. That friendship becomes everything to us. It could be due to loneliness. We desperately want someone to fill that kind of void that's missing in our life, so we throw ourselves in. It could be a desire for affirmation. We love how they make us feel about ourselves. And yet both are agendas that at their heart are actually selfish. We're looking to get something for ourselves from other people. We're not actually looking to just genuinely love them. And both lead to either smothering by inserting yourself too much, becoming possessive of the person, or disappointment because you don't get what you're looking for in the friendship and you find yourself crushed by it. But friendship with Jesus, friends, is a beautiful salve to both of these tendencies to isolation on the one hand and immersion on the other. He enables us to redeem our friendships. You see, when you have Jesus as as your friend, you are known and loved by the greatest being in the universe. It has this huge stabilizing effect on us. We're familiar with anchors in the ocean at port, how how, how they hold a ship at port, but we're probably less familiar with an anchor out at sea that affects by stabilizing a ship in rough seas. You see, with Jesus as your friend, you won't be crushed completely by the end of a friendship. You still have Christ. With Jesus as your friend, you will see your need for friendship because the cross speaks about the truth of who we are, that we're sinners in need of a Savior. And so we need the help of others. At the same time, through friendship with Jesus, we'll see the heart of Christ, how he's moved to forgive and embrace others and, and how he's forgiven and embraced us and will want to do the same for others as well. And with Christ as a friend, we, we won't idolize our friends and use them to fix our needs for self-esteem or loneliness because you're friends with the King of Kings. See, friendship with Jesus enables you to grow to be a friend like Jesus, a servant-hearted friend, a self-sacrificing friend, a friend focused on loving the other just for their own sake. I've been reflecting this week and asking myself the question, what sort of friend am I? And on reflection, I've realized I've been blessed with many good friends, many humble friends, servant-hearted friends, thoughtful friends who know me so well. But what I realized is that I've often taken these friendships for granted. And what this has reminded me is that I don't want that to continue. You know, it's worth noting that the main context in which Jesus gives these commands to love and embrace one another is to his disciples. It's actually to the church. Read with me verse 12 again. It says the following, This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you, said Jesus to his disciples. Read with me again verse 17, These things I command to you so that you will love one another. Jesus says what makes us his friends is obeying his command in verse 14. And his command is to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. That is to love the people in the church. Put another way, a true friend of Jesus 
will be a friend to their brothers and sisters in the church. It's not to say the only place to have friendships is inside the church, but to say that the place where redeemed friendships ought to be most on display is here. In the church, there's always hope for broken friendships. Jesus is present through the Holy Spirit. The greatest and most important thing in life you share in common with every other person, Jesus. And so there's always potential. Now, just as a note, I'm not trying to say that that you can be friends with everyone. Friends come and go in different seasons, and you can't be close with everyone. But if you're struggling with either loneliness or disappointment, there is always hope for you. It's also why we're so serious about gospel communities being a place where we can do life together, because friendships matter. You know, we can take risks in pursuing friendships because of the redemption of friendship in Christ. And that is our second point, friendships redeemed. But I don't just want to go and explain that you were made for friendships and friendships redeemed in and through Jesus. But our final point of time in this message together, I want to pause and consider the cultivation of friendships. How do we cultivate them? How do we grow in our friendships? And I want to begin by asking us to consider some questions. I wonder how you're going with friendships in the church. Are you experiencing rich friendship with others? Or are you perhaps disappointed? Wondering if you really belong here? Perhaps fearful of taking that first step to befriend someone else? Well, the truth is that often our expectations of friendships are informed more by the world than they are by the realities of the Bible. Our culture is an individualistic culture. It's a feelings-based culture. And so we tell ourselves things like, well, when it comes to friends, we should have this kind of natural chemistry. Uh, We should share all the same kind of interests in life. And so we tell ourselves, because our culture is also not just individualistic, but consumeristic, that friendship should be convenient. There should be loads of net benefits. They should form quickly with minimal effort. And if they don't, I'm probably just looking in the wrong place. Our culture also generally believes that making friends should require little to no effort, little to no skill, and little to no work. And our past experience usually supports this. Uh, We probably remember a season, likely when we were studying at university or when we were newly married, where we found it kind of effortless to make new friends. And what we forget is the uniqueness of that season that we were surrounded by people the same age, with the same interests, who had loads of time, living and studying in the same place. See, the effortless friendship is actually a mirage of a me-centered consumer culture, and it is not the way of Christ. Social media more just absolutely fans that aflame. We look on at others and we see, see, that was... Their friendships are easy, effortless. But why not for me? 
Why do I always seem to struggle? And so the illusion is perpetuated that true friendship should be easy and we're disappointed. And the fruit is we find ourselves questioning, do I really belong here? Is anybody really bothered about me? Does anyone really care? Hugh Black, the famous theologian from the 19th century, says it this way, and this is so good. Listen to what he says. This cut me to the heart. He says, We have few friendships because we are not willing to pay the price of friendship. The secret of friendship is just the secret of all spiritual blessing. The way to get is to give. The secret of friendship is just the secret of all spiritual blessing that the way to get is to give. I think for a moment on the manner in which the Lord Jesus pursued friendship with us. You know, just a page earlier in John's gospel, in John chapter 13, Jesus, on the night that he was to be betrayed, kneels down and he puts on an outer robe and he begins washing his disciples' feet. And then we read the following in verse 14. Jesus says, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. See, the model the Lord Jesus has given us isn't one of no effort. It's one of humble sacrifice for the sake of others. Such a love for one another that we'd be willing to perform the lowest of duties. Why? For their joy. Why should we think that our pursuit of friendship should look any different to the Lord Jesus' pursuit of his disciples? See, true friendship requires intentional, sacrificial cultivation. You know, if you know me well, one thing you might know is that I love gardening. Uh, Steve and I, we, we share a gardening bond as uh, gardening brothers. We love it. Um, and every gardener will know that the only thing that grows without cultivation is weeds. Gardening is actually highly technical. That's kind of what I love about it. You learn from experience and you collect experience to know how to make things grow. Few people are naturally good at gardening. You learn over time how to treat different plants, what they like and what they don't. This year I had my largest strawberry harvest ever because I've learned over time what they like. It's no accident that Jesus uses an agricultural metaphor in verse 16. I've appointed you to go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Fruit takes time. It takes cultivation to go from seed to fruit bearing. It is not immediate. You know, Paul in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, puts it this way. He says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh from the flesh will reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And, do, and let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, here's the application, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. I wonder this morning if you're struggling with loneliness. You're struggling with disappointment. 
I wonder if you'd mind if I ask you then a personal question. Where are you sowing? Are you sowing into friendships with others? How are you sowing? Is it with love and sacrifice? Is it with washing people's feet? Or is it a bit more consumeristic? You're mainly waiting to receive. You won't reap a harvest of great friendships if you aren't prepared for the cost. But if you are, there's a promise. But you will reap if you do not give up. Well, I want to end our time together then by looking at some principles for cultivating friendship. You know, if you've been struggling with friendships, I want to end with a few suggestions on how to cultivate them. And I've been thinking about this this week, and and I really have just four simple principles for us to uh, explore this morning. Four simple principles that I think will help us to grow as wonderful friends. And the first is simply this. Principle number one is priority. And by priority, I mean to value things and to give them time. Now, I wonder if, like me, you feel somewhat convicted that you've taken your friendships for granted and perhaps even that you've neglected them. Well, the first step is to value them, is to recognize that you really care about and you need your friends and for the friends that you have to give thanks to God for them. Secondly, it means to to not lightly cut yourself off from them. I mean, how quickly we take a new job or buy a house somewhere else and move away without even consulting with our friends. What does that say when we do that about how much we value them? How much we think we need them? I found this quote this week from C.S. Lewis. I think it's brilliant. He says this, If I had a piece of advice to a young man about a place to live, I think I should say, sacrifice almost everything to live where you can be near to your friends. I know I'm very fortunate in that respect. Sacrifice everything, C.S. Lewis says, to live close to your friends. You know, it might even be worth taking time to consider this week, who are the two or three friends God is calling you to invest in? And I remember when Shara and I were first married and Charlotte had several friendships that were really struggling. And so I just took time to, to sit with her and I said, well, sweetheart, who are the ladies you really love and encourage you in Christ and let's prioritize those friendships? You know, perhaps making time for them involves including them in your rhythms. You're just your regular rhythms of life. Maybe you want to set aside a meal a week to eat with and be together with a friend. Maybe you want to do exercise together like uh, a whole bunch of us do, Steve and Sean and Big Richie and Andrew as well. Um, We just love jogging together, and it's a wonderful time to catch up. Or maybe even if you're a parent with young kids, you might want to just go to a park together with someone else's kids and spend time with them. 
A great way is to invest in the people in your gospel community. I mean, part of our gospel community's whole life is that we do life together, that we build friendships. It's a, it's a massive aspect of our groups. You might want to even consider creating an annual holiday away together like we've done and enjoyed over many, many years. Even if you're an introvert, we need to think about how we're investing in friends. As has been said, introverts do need time to recharge, but if you leave a battery on charge for too long, it will destroy it in time. Everybody needs to invest in friendships. Secondly, not just to give them priority, but also the second principle I think is encouragement. You know, a true friend is, is someone's great encourager. You know, our Aussie culture isn't big on encouragement. We just don't like to do it. We feel awkward about it. We don't want to give people too much of a big head and make them proud. But genuine encouragement isn't about giving people a big head or being proud. It's actually showing them where God is at work in their life and pointing them to Christ. It's an exercise in faith. You know, Romans twelve ten says, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. You know, in a country where we don't like to give out encouragement, encouragement is hard to find. And so we should be balm to our friends. Um, We should encourage them so much that they have confidence to know that if they come to us, we will empathize with them in their struggles and point them to Christ. Which brings me to our third principle, which isn't just priority, it's not just encouragement, but also honesty. And by honesty, I mean both disclosure and sharing. You know, if a friend is someone who knows you and loves you just the same, it's hard to develop true friendships without being honest. How can someone know who you really are and what you're really struggling with if you don't share? How can they know your your habitual sins or your dreams or your disappointments? You know, a long time in the past, I was in a Bible study with a, a, a young man at the time who was a pathological liar. He couldn't help but lie all the time. You couldn't be his friend. You didn't know what was true and what was a lie. But also, it's not possible to be someone's friend if you never share the truth about yourself. Because you'll never be known by other people. Not really. See, sharing involves risk. But the cross gives us wonderful freedom. Because at the foot of the cross, what could someone ever say about you that the Lord Jesus doesn't say, forgiven in full at the cross? Here's a question to think about. How open and honest are you with people in your growth group? Being a friend involves one being honest about ourselves inwardly, but it also involves being honest to our friends as well, in particular where they sin. And I think this is really tough for us as Australians. I I think our culture finds this extremely difficult. We just want to be nice like everyone else. But choosing to be thought of as nice at the expense of honesty isn't friendship. The proverb says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. If we refuse to share with our brother or sister in Christ, our friend, when they are sinning, we are not being a friend, we are being an enemy. See, being a great encourager, the second point, I think enables a friend to really hear when we share something difficult, 
that we love them and care about them because it's in the backdrop of a hundred different encouragements. Well, that's the third one, honesty. But the final one is not just, first and foremost, priority. It's not just encouragement. It's not just honesty. But the fourth one, I think, and really the key one is Jesus. By enjoying the greatest of friendships with Jesus. Fostering a heart that loves Jesus is the key to being an excellent friend. Because to be like him is to rest secure. It's to be unmoved by the challenges of sin and weakness. It's to sacrificially pursue others in love. It's to forgive, embrace, and serve them. It's to give thanks to God for the beautiful gift of friends and to ask him to to grow us to have his same heart for him. And here's the truth. If you're trusting in him, you can rest assured that you are his friend. And because you're his friend, he will finish the work he began and make you the best of friends as well. Well, four principles to help us cultivate friendships, priority, encouragement, honesty, and Jesus. Friends, would we cast our fears aside and pursue deep, lasting friendships with others when I pray as we close. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you so much for the wonderful gift of friendship. Lord God, you have blessed us with many treasured friendships in and through this church. I I, I thank you, Lord, for the wonderful friends that I have, even right in this room. People who have been faithful to me and loyal to me and helped me over many, many years. But most of all this morning, we want to thank you, Lord God, for the friendship we have in Christ. Thank you, Lord, that he sees us perfectly and loves us just the same. He was willing to wash our feet and bleed for us, Lord God. Lord, help us to be that kind of friend. Help us to take our gaze off ourselves and to see others and be moved in love to walk across the room towards them, Lord God. Would we embrace others in love and point them to Christ? And would this church, this community be all the richer for it? Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.